0: If you missed our Music Box series on HBO, you can find all six films on HBO Max. They're all there, all six of them, right next to each other. Go check them out. You can check out the latest one, Juice World Into the Abyss as well. Music Box on HBO Max. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is gonna be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car, now. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where I have a new episode of The Rewatchables coming on Wednesday night. I'm just going to tell you what it is right now. Father of the Bride, 30th anniversary, me and Amanda Dobbins breaking down what might be the greatest dad-daughter movie of all time and what probably is the greatest wedding movie of all time. You can hear all of it. It'll be up on Wednesday night. Check it out. Speaking of things that are up on Wednesday, FanDuel Sportsbook and I We've been messing around with some boosts and some same game parlay stuff. We're going to do a same game parlay for one of the NBA games on Wednesday. Now, who knows by Wednesday who's even going to be playing stuff like that. So we're going to we're going to take it pretty close to uh the game time. But we're thinking Bulls Raptors. Bulls Raptors seems like a safe pick. Anyway, go to FanDuel Sportsbooks homepage. You'll see whatever same game parlay we picked. It's usually pick a team to win pick a player with points and one other thing and we put it all together and you can wager on it if you'd please. We've had some really good success on on Our Underdog Parlay hit again last week. Cost them $1.7 million. They aren't shy about telling me either. They're like, yeah, it hit. People won money on it. $1.7 million. So uh, stay ready for Thursday. Million Dollar Picks, me and Peter Schrager. We'll see. We've hit five underdog parlays this year. We'll see if we can make it six. Um, I went to the Sixers Celtic game last night, before we get to the Sports Reporters with Jason Gabriel Curtis. I went to the Celtics Sixers game last night and the Celtics lost as they usually do when they're playing a good team. They'll put together the makings of a good game. They'll fall apart in two different small sections and then you'll leave the game going, wait a second, how did we not win that game? Classic example yesterday, they're up 97-90. And all of a sudden, they're losing. And Joel Embiid was on the other end, on Philadelphia.
1: <sighs>
0: I'll tell you, man, I need to start going to more NBA games. I really feel out of the loop. It's been almost two years. I think this was the second regular season game or the third regular season game I've been to since uh, the season got cut short March 2021. Been to a couple of playoff games. But you pick up so much more in person. And this one, we were lucky because we were able to say We were sitting in the first row right next to the Celtic bench. So it was picking up a bunch of stuff. And the other thing, when you're, when you're that close, you really get a sense of the size, strength, speed, all that stuff of the best guys. And Embiid is one of those guys that um, I think there's five or six guys in the league that just have to be seen in person at this point. Embiid is one of them. I was lucky enough to see him work out when, uh, when he was, right before he got hurt for the NBA draft, I think in 2014, I wrote about it. I came away from the workout and I was like, that guy has to be the number one pick. With the size that he has, the athleticism that he has, how can you not take that guy first? He has to go first. Well, he got hurt, uh, hurt his knee, ended up falling to third. Philly gets him and watching him evolve over the last eight years into the guy he is now where he's, he's much bigger than he was when he was in college. And it's kind of alarming to see, um, not alarming, but it's kind of stunning to see some of the um, old footage of him when he's at Kansas, how skinny he was compared to what he looks like now. Now he is like this just specimen, you know, and he still moves pretty well. I know he's had some knee stuff, but um, he moves at the pace that is good for him I wouldn't, you never see him sprinting. He's pretty careful about how he moves the four. And if he's sprinting, he's getting an alley oop out of it or or a fast break dunk, whatever. But for the most part, he's moving at the right pace for him. Physically, he's overpowering. He can spin on either leg and he is just such a bitch to defend. It is unbelievable. It was so awesome to watch a guy in person. He finished with like 40. I don't even think it was like an incredible Embiid game until the last couple minutes when he just took over and he scored every single time down the stretch and Philly ended up winning. And there's this incredible moment coming out of a timeout. I think Philly goes up four. There's like 11 seconds left. Boston calls timeout. Coming out of the timeout, Embiid comes off the bench, starts walking over to Emi Adoka, the Celtics coach, who they know each other because um, Udoka was at Philly for at least a year. And he walks through to Adoka. He's like, "Hey, hey!" And Adoka's like, thinks he's going to say something profound. And he's like, "I'm a motherfucking monster." And then he nodded at Adoka, like just to make sure he heard him. Then he walked off, and I, I loved it. I, I just love him um, being. I don't know how long he's going to stay healthy at the level he's at now. You know, we've learned with big guys, um, you just never know. You take it year by year. You take it year by year with the aging, with the health. And you watch somebody that's running like that, and you know the bigger the body is, the more that can go wrong. It's like anything else. There's just a lot of ways. You just look at the weight and the stress that playing at that size and that weight. Um, you know, you just always worry about it. Yao Ming was around. Now Yao Ming, it wasn't nearly as athletic as Embiid was. He was seven foot six. Um, he was playing year round for China. There are all these reasons, but all of a sudden Yao Ming was gone. All of a sudden, Ralph Sampson was gone. You look up one day, he's in the 86 finals. Two years later, he's on Sacramento. Um, over and over again, we've seen with the tall guys. Don't take them for granted. You never know. And with Embiid, watching that guy in person when he's playing like he's playing now is really special. It really is. He is a true, awesome, unstoppable center. Now, last night the Celtics were missing a bunch of people that had to play his can't and his freedom. My apologies, Ennis. Ennis Freedom had to play him uh, big, big minutes. Um, and he does a weirdly decent job against Embiid, considering he, I think everybody considers Ennis a liability. But, uh, but when Embiid really wants to, holy mackerel, man. He can get to the rim if he wants. If you, if you seal him off, he can spin toward the baseline, shoot that little jumper. He can go into the paint and pound you in and do a little jump hook. He's got a lot of options and I, I don't think, you know, I'm watching TV every night, I'm watching the league and seeing it in person really gave me this historical appreciation of how many big guys in the history of the league had the arsenal of moves that he has. You know, you start with Hakeem. Shaq, I think, was pretty underrated for how many moves he had compared to, I think, what people tended to think his offense was a little more primitive Ewing, especially as his knees started to get shot in his next years, had like his three or four staple moves that were really, really good. Um, you know, and then you go to like the Robert Parrish, he had like his one little spin move on the baseline and then his little pull-up turnaround that he had. Um, everybody's got something. And Bede has added this, uh, this kind of off-balance 20-footer that he's had the whole time, but now it's kind of basically unstoppable. And it's kind of the point where you have to play at least a little off him because if you don't, he can kind of bully right by you and get into the paint. But if you play a little bit off him, he can do this like weird one legged off balance thing that he has. And if it's going in, you're you're kind of done. There's no way to uh to stop it, especially Philly was spacing it the right way. They put him and Curry, Seth Curry on uh on one side. They spread the rest of the side with shooters. If you go and you double beat well, he's gonna be able to pass it to somebody. Um, his passing is good. It's it's sloppy too. It's kind of a combo of he can make a great assist and then the next time, uh he'll throw it right to the other team. So I'm not saying he's like he's not like Bill Walton, but he knows where to put the ball from time to time. Sometimes he can be a little lazy. But the scoring, you know, and you really see the difference with him versus somebody like Tatum. And granted, Tatum isn't the guy that he's going to be down the road. I still feel like there's a whole level up for him to go. I still don't think he's that fun to play with. Um, there's a lot of one-on-one stuff that a lot of times he seems, we have a category in the rewatchables for um, the the guy who seems like they're just over there in their own movie, we call it the Judd Nelson word because if you watch New Jack City, Judd Nelson's just in his own movie. <laughs> I don't know what movie he's in, but it's not New Jack City. and. Sometimes Tatum feels like that when you watch the Celtics. Everybody's kind of trying to play together and Tatum's just kind of off doing his own thing sometimes. And I think he's hard to play with. And there's been a lot of debate this year about the Jalen and Tatum, how long before we start wondering can these... I'm, I'm still not there yet. But I do think Tatum's difficult to play with. But when you see a game like last night, you really see the difference between the top seven or eight guys in the league and everybody else. Because Tatum, I think, you know, he might be number 14 on somebody's list, he might be number 22 on somebody else's list, but he's on that second level. You know, and Embiid is on the first level, especially healthy Embiid. But there's a handful of guys right now that when it gets to, when they get to the level that Embiid was at yesterday, you just kind of shrug your shoulders and you don't know what to do. He's there, there's no question. I think. I think Giannis can can be there from time to time. Jokic, absolutely. Luca when he's in shape. Steph when he's feeling it. And KD, obviously, who's the best scoring forward of all time. So you have those five. You have Embiid. You have LeBron on some nights, especially when his uh, when his three pointers going in. That's really the list right now. You know, I'm, I I don't think James Harden's at that level anymore because I don't think he can get to the rim and just get get space as easy as he used to be. Whether that comes back over the course of the season, I guess we'll see. Davis, Anthony Davis, I mean, now he's hurt, but his this is just one of those seasons that I, I really wish I could go back in time and change my NBA 75 vote. Donovan Mitchell will have moments, but I don't think consistently. I, I would think he's closer to the Tatum camp than the Embiid camp. And just on down the line, like Zach Levine will have moments every once in a while. Zion, if he we ever see him healthy again, he's somebody that is a handful. But ultimately, it's really those guys. It's really Giannis. It's Jokic. It's Doncic. It's Curry. It's Durant. And it's Embiid. And watching that game last night really, really, really cemented to me that they have to figure out a Simmons trade. They they at they at some point are going to have to pull the trigger on something because when you have a guy like that and he's healthy and he's a center, you just never know where your window is. They can't they can't just have Simmons on the sideline for a year. I think the league knows it. We're less than 2 months now until the trade deadline. There's some urgency and at the same time there's you have a bunch of teams that are super unhappy with with their own rosters. And now there's a combination of, there's urgency on Philly's side because of Embiid's window, but there's also urgency with some other teams that, hey, maybe there's this asset that um, is in distress that we can go grab. And at some point, they're going to figure out what that model is. But the thing Philly really needs is a real point guard. And I think Curry, as a creator and, and heat check guy and somebody who plays well with Embiid in their offense, awesome. Awesome piece, Harris is a nice piece. Um, Thibault, who was was uh, really fun to watch in person yesterday, he's didn't he wasn't the refs just weren't weren't buying it from him yesterday, but uh, but Thibault in general, Thibault Thibault, sorry pronunciation dyslexia, um, but him in person, wow, and and that's somebody that I think if you're in a round two or a round three, you want that guy somewhere for 35 minutes. You want him on the court. He guarded Tatum last night. We've seen him guard Steph Curry. I mean, he he's one of the few guys in the league who can guard basically everybody from six feet to six, nine. And he gave Tatum, he was in Tatum's head the whole night. Tatum really had a lot of problems with, uh, with Tybalt, but, um, but they, what they really need is a, is a point guard who can shoot. Can they turn Simmons into that? Can they turn Simmons into like, we talked, KSC and I talked on Sunday about DeJounte Murray, whether, and I don't think the Spurs would trade him at this point, but I think that they would have maybe before the season. Now I think he's going to make the all-star team. I think he's getting a lot of buzz now as like this year's like super duper underrated guy. And I'd rather have him than Simmons. After Simmons, we just basically watched him uh, bow out of basketball for a long time. What does that mean for him competitively? It's a stay away. Could they get Darren Fox for him. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I think, I think they have to look to upgrade the point guard position with the other pieces they have and figure it out. But they, there is a window with this stuff and you never know, right? Brooklyn, that season has been a lot rockier than I think we ever thought. Milwaukee's coming off the title. And usually when you've played, you know, a bunch of games over the course of eight months and the four playoff rounds, and then the next season, who knows, can somebody get hurt at the wrong time? Uh, it, there's a drop off after that. And unless you want to count Chicago, which I want to see more, I want to see what they do at the trade deadline. But with Philly, like I don't want to play them in a playoff series. If Embiid's going to look like he did last night, I just don't. So um, we'll see what kind of team they put together. But what a cool story though, man, The the Embiid thing, when you think like it goes from, holy shit, where did this guy come from? To his one Kansas season to, should he be the number one pick? Oh, he should clearly be the number one pick. Oh wait, he's hurt. Oh, we're not going to see him at all. Oh, he only played twenty six games as a rookie. Um, oh, is this guy ever going to stay on a court? So the point he's at now, where it's so clear that he's really worth on his game, you know. And I, I think that's that's ultimately what separates these guys. That's what separates the the guys that you leave the arena, like my daughter did last night, who had never seen a beat play in person, and was just like. I I can't believe how good that guy was. It's the extra work. It's stuff like adding that little off-balance, one-legged thing and and how competitive he is, which is why I want to tell that Udoka story at the top. Um, That's who he is. He's really competitive. And he has the same quality that Giannis has and I think Jokic has and Curry and Durant and Doncic, where it's not just like these incredible skills, but it's also... Um, there's some there's some motherfucker in them you know there really is and you need it so we'll see will this be the year it would all depend on that Ben Simmons trade but seeing him in person last night was really special so wanted to mention that uh, we're going to get to the Sports reporters with Jason Gay and Brian Curtis first time we've done it this year but first our friends from Pearl Jam <laughs> All right, the sports reporters. We haven't convened in a while. We were overdue. Brian Curtis from The Ringer is here. Jason Gay from The Wall Street Journal is here. We're going to do a 2021 sports media year in review. The big stories. A lot of stuff happened this year. As we were trying to figure out topics and stuff. Now Brian's doing this on the press box, so this is old hat for him with some of these topics. But um, let's start. I want to start here, Jason Gay. The F1 renaissance that we had this year with young people, with people like even at the Ringer, like Rosillo and Kevin Clark, um, just in general, this was in the zeitgeist all of a sudden, this sport that had just not been in the zeitgeist. I guess my question is, can Netflix turn any sport into a thing? What What can Netflix not do?
1: Well, it seems abundantly clear that the doc series is what you're referring to help build an audience here in the U S and it definitely feels like it's here to stay. It doesn't feel like it's some the latest affectation or something with sports writers. It definitely feels like there's a fan base that's budding. And let's not forget. This is a massive sport in the rest of the world. It's lagged behind for a good long time in the United States, but uh, to a great, you know, most of the world, this, these are significant races, significant players. And then you had in this final event, kind of this, you know, Amazing moment, which was controversial and, of course, you know, disputed a great deal. But I think for anybody who watched it, they're not going to forget it. And so all the DNA is there to build something. And it reminds me a little bit of Premier League and the way that worked and built the United States. But this feels faster because of the Netflix thing.
0: What do you think, Brian?
2: You remember when soccer was really blowing up in America the first time and the crusty old sports writers? We're just taking a shit on it, you know, like it's non-American. I, I don't I don't accept this. I would like to bring that bit back for F1. And, and I would okay. like to be the crusty old sports writer. I really okay. would, because it is so funny to look at Twitter on a weekend morning and everybody's doing it. Everybody's talking about F1 and they're not just talking about it. They're doing the expert thing. Well, I got some thoughts on the track at Saudi Arabia. Uh, if you guys <laughs> want to know, you do, <laughs> you know, enough at this point. Um, it's, it's, I just find it really, really funny to watch a sport sort of bloom like that. I don't have anything against it, but I do wonder, do people really like F1 or do they just want to participate in Twitter on weekend mornings like they do with soccer or in 2021? Are those even different things?
0: So it's like an opportunity, social media opportunity cost you're saying, yeah, or, or opportunities just to be involved in something that's not football on a Sunday. It's a new every, thing. Everything's a
2: social media opportunity now, right? Getting your COVID injection is a social media opportunity. Look here, got my booster. I'm vaxxed.
1: Let's go right to Brian's charbroiled, cynical heart and ask, like, it also feels like every journalist now has to have a sports side hustle, right? Like you can't just have your main deal you gotta have a side deal now people who read the wall street journal know that they're going to get an awful lot much too much bike racing out of me because that's just something i care about brian i don't know what it is with you bill i'm not sure what it is for you jfk assassination plots but uh you know everybody has a side uh you know thing
0: Yeah, I think I have a lot. I probably have too many side things. For Brian, it's it's used bookstores is really his passion. (laughs) It's my sport. That's my fourth sport. (laughs) If Netflix ever did a used bookstore documentary series, Brian would be tweeting about it constantly.
1: But it it does feel like F one is getting propelled by U S. sports media who are you know putatively covering other things.
0: All right, so I'm thinking. I'm slightly older than you guys. In the 70s and early 80s, the Indy 500 and that whole thing was like the dominant kind of car thing that was going on. And even to the point where it was on the cover of Sports Illustrated and stuff like that. And I knew who a lot of the guys were and everybody watched the Indy 500. Then at somewhere in the 90s into the 2000s, it seemed like NASCAR kind of grabbed it. And NASCAR felt a little more relevant. And I think part of it was, In the Indy 500, at some point, the cars were just going so fast. It just looked like fast cars going in a circle and it just wasn't that interesting. So NASCAR had this moment and everyone was telling us NASCAR was having a moment. And we had multiple networks like go all in on NASCAR having a moment. And it never really totally happened, I think, in the way people thought. And now it's shifted to F1. The Netflix thing, I think, helps. I also think from the little I know, and I admittedly don't know anything about F1, but it seems like the fact that the tracks are different are a big part of this, right? It's not just the drivers. It's not just like the fact that there's a season and you're building to something, but each race feels different and they're a little more fun to watch than maybe just the Indy 500 model of just a circle. Um, Now, I'm sure I said five things that will make somebody mad who really cares about this stuff there, but do you see like the legacy thing though about how it was like one era, one era, and now we're in this new era and it does feel like it's at least here to stay for... A couple years, I don't know if people are going to get bored of it, but it, I feel like there's some real legs in there. What do you guys think?
1: I mean, I would say that there are a couple of modern components to this. Of course, there's a Netflix thing. And look, they're borrowing a form formula that like you had with UFC, you had with American Idol, you had with countless reality shows where you sort of build up this idea around the personalities and especially around the conflict. So you have that. Um, But the other element, of course, is that this is an ec- extremely accessible sport. It used to be this incredibly exotic thing that, you know, happened in faraway places. You mentioned a few of them. And the idea that ABC was going to send, you know, Howard Cosell to all of them, that just wasn't going to happen. So you now have the ability to be in all these places when they actually are happening. And so in the same way that you had for European soccer, you have now availability, which builds fandom too.
2: Yeah, the real mark was it went from, Overseas faraway locations to Austin. You know, now now if it's in Austin, it is main and I say this is a UT grad, it is it is officially mainstream culture where
0: absolutely we're all in. It's funny that in some of these sports we have, there's overcoverage, right? Basketball, I think, is number one with this. There's basketball is the most overcovered American sport now, where we know so much about all of these players. And the moment somebody's unhappy, they're in a hundred trade rumors. I'd like to think i I'm one of the Dozens of people that probably participated in how it's overcovered. Because anytime something happens, we're there. The ringer is there. I'm there. One of our other podcasts is there. I think the F1 experience has felt a little more old school where people are kind of discovering stuff as it happens and it's not daily, everyday stuff. And, you know, the documentary series, whatever you call it, has really helped people kind of teach them the characters. It reminds me a little of when Hard Knocks premiered like 20 years ago. And we went under the hood with football in a way that we just hadn't before. You know, and it's like, that you got to spend all this time with Brian Billick and these the, the the quarterback and, you know, Ray Lewis and all these different people. And it was like, oh, this is, I have a new appreciation for this stuff. Is it possible, Brian, that we've just kind of dissected our main sports so much that we kind of need new blood.
2: I think it's more that sports fans have way more bandwidth than we ever think they can. And this has mm. surprised me my whole life. You know, when we went from the sports page era to like the ESPN.com era that you're talking about. And all of a sudden it was like just way more stuff online every day. And I thought, you know what? People aren't going to be able to process it. They're used to like, you know, 16 pages of newspaper every day. And guess what? They just, they just wolfed it all down and were like, okay, I'm ready for more. I'm ready, and I'm ready for Woj to come along and give me the <laughs> trades of players I've barely have never I've never seen play and I've barely oh, wait. heard of. Oh, Woj
0: has another COVID
2: scratch. Yeah, I know. My that, tweet
0: notification's going off
2: again. Luke Mbaba
0: Mute is now not going to be at tonight's game.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, all these, I, I love it during college football coaching season. Like, Temple has hired a new special teams coach. I got this, you know, 400 <laughs> retweet. What? <laughs> okay. But I think that sports fans can just, put more stuff in their brain and I think they want more stuff. And I think what's weird is we got so much stuff on television. Now we got so much to read about online. And then you say, Oh, here's F1. And they go, I'm in, I have to, I have time for this. I have room for this. I'm interested. Let's go.
1: It's also exotic enough that it makes you seem cool. Like, right. Isn't there a component of that too? Like, you know, years ago, it was saying you were with the Smiths or with the Cure. Uh, you know, after that, it was you know your favorite EPL team or wasn't maybe it wasn't an EPL team. And now, you know, declaring yourself as an F1 fan in the United States is to say something about yourself, much in the same way your taste music does. Hmm.
0: Well, Jason, I have to ask you this: as the world's number one cycling fan, um, you've been waiting for. The Tour de France to have a moment. Are we just a Netflix documentary, an awesome Netflix documentary about the Tour de France away from people like Kevin Clark and Nora Princiati caring about the Tour de France? Is that all we need? Is it just that?
1: Yes. If we can get Kevin and Nora on board, that's all it will take to just push us to the top step of the podium. Look, we'll take what we can get in the sport of cycling. We're right down there with uh, bowling and whatever else there is. I mean, we are not a uh, major sport in the united states although we are as f1 is something that's quite a bit bigger in other parts of the world i mean look things like this have been done i mean there have been cycling movies you know this of course american flyers breaking away two classics bangers we didn't go out (laughs) didn't get over the hump (laughs) with those although i would say breaking away had a great effect in terms of inspiring people but um i would say more likely you know Netflix would be looking in the direction of something with an even bigger global reach. Cricket, you know, is a big thought as to what that could be as a series because you're talking about a massive sport and a massive part of the world.
0: I actually, I got to say, I would probably watch cricket. I still don't totally understand the rules of cricket, but I remember who wrote that piece like 10, 12 years ago about the world's greatest cricket guy, Ray Thompson. Ray Thompson. Mm -hmm. And it was a guy I'd never heard of. And that, I remember that piece did amazingly well at ESPN.com. Like it was like the most read piece of the year and everybody was kind of like, Oh, what's this mean? And in general, like if there was the right documentary about that, weirdly, I think darts would work. I'd pay to yeah. go behind the scenes. I think there's probably like eight to 10 of the greatest darts people ever. And people are in there. If you've ever seen some of the stuff they've had where it's like, uh, you know, you have arenas full of people watching the world series of darts, whatever it is. I think chess is another one. Now the chess, I think sure. is every other year, but if there was the right kind of docu series for whatever the chess, whatever that, what are the world champions of chess, whatever it is. And we had the build up and all the people and the characters and the strategy. I would well, like you, that. What, what else do you have?
1: You've, you've already, you've already had the Netflix series with queen's gambit, which was, you know, a oh, true. Yeah. yeah. That was the, the fictional. Show. Um, You know, I'm not privy to your business particulars, but is it something that you would consider for the Ringer? Are we not that far away from an F1 podcast or a cricket podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network? (laughs) I don't know. Brian is raising his hand for the folks at home. Brian is raising his hand. (laughs) I'm
0: in. How long is the season? Is it, what is it like? It never stops. It never stops, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't. I honestly don't know how to separate the Netflix part and the Sunday morning part from is there actual interest in this? But Brian, any sports you, you wish? Billiards? What about like uh, the whole billiards world? Would you like to go into that for a year? When I was in London a couple of years ago, I went and watched darts
2: and it was amazing. And what's amazing about it is a dartboard is like as big as a trash can lid. Yeah. And you cannot see yeah. the dartboard at the back <laughs> of this big stadium so they have to put the dartboard on a huge screen and yet it was absolutely full of people getting absolutely wasted and having and seeing these songs and the 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 dark guys the arrow men is that what they're called were coming out to these 80s rock hits to like tina turner and all this kind of stuff you know and it it was an unbelievable atmosphere so i, I to me i think that's already on bbc america i think that should absolutely be a bigger thing in america
0: one other thing that it that it has that i think works with americans specifically is watching people who are the absolute best at some sort of something that us normal human beings wouldn't be able to do, right? You watch somebody drive some of the tracks that they have at the speeds they're at, and you're just like, I wouldn't be able to do that. And that's kind of fun to watch. Whereas like, if they did this about horse racing, if Netflix had done the the horse racing version of this, I don't know if that works. Like, I don't know if I could identify with jockeys. You know, you always almost end up feeling bad for jockeys when you watch some of the stuff about them. It doesn't seem like the most awesome life and the horses and you don't know who's on the level and who's not. Like, I wouldn't enjoy that as much. But watching people who are the absolute best in the world are driving a car. There's something to it. Anything else, Jason, or can we move on?
1: I mean, I definitely agree that the technology is a component of it too. The fact that you know you can't drive an F1 car, of course, but there is just so much uh, componentry and gadgetry going on and the teams genuinely have strong feelings for each other and has all these kind of bona fides that you need for people to pay attention. And again, it wouldn't have meant anything if you had this liftoff from the series and then people turn the channel to actually watch it and nothing happens. But Instead you have this incredibly epic season and you have this great final weekend and so I think that's that's the recipe for success.
0: Who's the federer of F One?
1: Oh, that's Lewis, for sure. Okay.
0: Who's the Y Djokovic?
1: <laughs> I'm gonna give Clark that one.
2: Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, we need we need to check Twitter and uh,
0: <laughs> figure out some <laughs> answers to some of these questions. All right. So yeah, so we don't want to make people mad. All right. We take a break, come back, talk about the main and cast. This episode is brought to you by Taco Bell. If you're anything like me during a busy day at work, I need lunch that is just as fresh as it is delicious and easy. And the all new cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell is exactly that. Made with high quality ingredients like seasoned, slow roasted chicken, pico de gallo, shredded purple cabbage, and avocado verde salsa sauce. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos Burrito and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken Menu at Taco Bell now. All right, the Manning cast, which I really enjoyed and I no longer watch and haven't really watched at all one iota since week four. And I figure the next day, if anything happened, I can consume it with a nice spicy 90-second clip. I was in a first-hand situation with this where the Pats were playing on a Monday night against the Bills. The Manning cast was going on. It never even occurred to me to watch the Manning cast. It was my team. I wanted to watch the normal way without conversations distracting me. And in general, like it, it felt like more of a gimmick as the season went along. It was cool at the beginning, at least for me. And then I think it would have these moments. But ultimately... I hate to say this about myself, but the traditional, even though I don't even really like the greasy Riddick uh, Levy crew that much, it's fine. It's like a C plus B minus, but it was just easier to follow the game with those guys. And ultimately I just want to watch football and I want to know what's happening and who did what. And I don't want to be sidetracked by the things. I think it's good that the mini exists. I think it was smart. It probably is going to do way better on ESPN2 than anything else they had. But I think I've altered my position a little bit on is this going to change sports media and how we do broadcast? What do you think after a whole season of it, Brian Curtis? Um, i put the brakes certainly on will it change everything about sports
2: television? And and I don't think I ever quite thought that just because the talent of, of those guys is so different. I, I totally disagree with you, though. I've actually liked it more, and I get disappointed when they're not on. Hmm. And, and to me, it's it's actually the surprise has been It's really easy to follow the game on the Manning cast. And the reason is that Peyton Manning is a play-by-play guy and an analyst and joking around with Eli and interviewing people at the same time. Like I find if you go back to both telecasts, often Peyton and Eli are setting the stakes of a particular play of a third down or big fourth down in the fourth quarter, as well as or better than the guys on the other broadcast. And that's what's so shocking to me because we're used to this as kind of like a conversation and we're, we're we're having fun and we're doing X's and O's. But Peyton is sitting there and he's kind of doing play by play and he's kind of doing it well, a lot better than I expected. And I've watched the regular telecast and there have been fourth quarters where they really screwed up game winning drives and have not been good and have been off topic or messing up and stuff like that. So to me, I'm I'm I really, really like it. And I could imagine this one, not all of sports television, but I could definitely imagine this being the main Monday night telecast and not having the other, the regular one.
0: Would you have guests though? Because I like it when it's just Peyton and Eli. I don't care about the guy. I think they do the guests because it's a good way to drum up publicity for whatever. But I like when they're just watching the game and commenting on it as two brothers who really know football.
2: I like the one where it's like it was in the fourth quarter was that week one where they had Russell Wilson and like they were like locked in on the game and he was talking football yeah. to them about what was happening in front of them like I thought that was really cool I could have given up on some of like Brett Favre was an all-time bottom five guest on any sports show when but, that, but that's
0: man. that's been the case for 30 years <laughs> yeah. yeah I draw the line when it's like oh here's Kevin Hart it's like I'm I'm positive. I would just rather watch the football game than hear the Manning brothers talk to Kevin Hart for 50 minutes. But so Jason, you're the tiebreaker. What do you got?
1: Well, I'm just glad to hear Brian hasn't curbed his enthusiasm because I remember very well a Tuesday in Las Vegas at the beginning of the season, I had gone to the Raiders Ravens opening night, Monday night football game. And I had not participated in the Manning cast debut audience because I was at the game, but in my phone that morning was an emergency podcast from Brian Curtis talking about this as if it were the man walking across the moon, and I think it is sort of a very significant moment for uh, television sports in the respect that what was the last time we talked about an in-game production idea? I mean, this right. has really been a couple generations now of basically the same format. Like individual personalities come out and they shine, people get excited about a Tony Romo or a Keed Talib, but you know, by and large, it's very recognizable from the thing that you were seeing 40 years ago. And here was something that was a real news spin. I do agree that it's sharper when the two of them are talking together and it isn't reliant on the pre-production bits, because that's the thing that really kind of lags it, I think, when they go like, oh, here's some footage of when you were at Manning Camp, or, you know, here's a joke that I remember from something something. But it is a, I think, you know, Bill, when you describe How you are as an audience member for it, I think ESPN will happily take that. The idea that you're going to be an ESPN consumer for a marquee game that you're very interested in and then a casual fan of a product on ESPN too, that's heaven for them. And like, I know what you're saying that like the hype around it and the media, you know, excitement over it doesn't necessarily match what the mass audience is for it, but there's a lot of TV like that, lots of it.
0: The hype was deserved. It was a really cool wrinkle to a format that has basically been stale for 40 years or not, or not really innovated on. And I still feel I'm still pro the mating thing. I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like I'm not. I just personally chose not to watch it, but I'm glad it exists if that makes sense. And I think it's going to pave yeah. the way for a lot of different versions of it. Most of which will be bad. <laughs> I think I think the, the key part of this is what Brian laid out. Like Peyton is so good at it that that's what makes this special. And to think that you can replicate that with other people, I think is really unrealistic. Like they're going to try to do it with basketball, it's not going to work.
1: Um, Brian, do you think that this is going to be, you know, as Bill said, it'll be imitated for sure. But do you think it'll also be the way that talent? who otherwise would have no interest in the typical model of like getting on the road for 16 games a year or 17 games a year and like traveling around and doing all that could now have their own sort of bespoke brand that you could kind of spin off of the main product. And that way you could, I don't know, theoretically get a Tom Brady to do, you know, a season of Tom Brady football down the road or something like that.
2: I, I think that is actually the key point to all this and kind of the hidden point when ESPN announced this, To me, the most interesting thing was that Peyton Manning was producing this. So we were changing the whole way TV hires guys. They weren't hiring an ex-athlete and saying, hey, you're going to go to our production meetings and you're going to do this and you're going to learn to talk like this. The athlete was saying, oh, ESPN, I see you as a place to hang my shingle and -hmm. produce my content. And by the way, we don't have to wait for Tom Brady because he just did it on ESPN with the man in the arena thing. Great show. all these athletes are treating (laughs) thank you bill all these athletes are treating espn the networks now not as their employer but as their co-producer like i'm going to do my thing and if you want to have my thing on your airways this is what jordan did with the last dance like we can do it we're we're part we're not i don't work for you we're partners and i and i think that's actually a really interesting
0: thing that's happened with sports television well, and in general I think that's been the mindset with a lot of this stuff is I'm not a work for hire. If I'm going to participate in this and create IP for you, I want to also be involved in the upside of it. And the Manning's now can take this show on the road if they want. Like there's been rumors about if Amazon ever gets into football even beyond what's been rumored, like could the Manning's just go to Amazon and would Amazon overpay for the Manning's and how does that work and um I think the way they did it allows themselves to give flexibility. I will say, I think this would work the most and be the most important. This that just the whole secondary screen thing, which by the way has been around before the Mannings, to be fair. Let's all stop saying the Mannings invented this. Sure. Um baseball, I think, can be incredibly important for this. And we've seen it we've seen ESPN dabble in this with college football where they have the crew that roots for one team and the crew that roots for the other team and the fan things. I think baseball broadcasts are pretty bad. And I say this as a team, as I root for a team that's been in a lot of different playoff situations over the last few years. And I think Joe Buck is, is a very good play by play guy. But when you think about how bad the ESPN broadcast has been really over the last 10 years, how much they've struggled with it and if they could take the same kind of innovation they've done with football, make baseball's fucking boring. You're sitting there for three and a half hours. Like to have, to think that we're doing it with the same local broadcast where it's like, and there's Jason Gay. He's batting two thirty eight. You might remember his father, Bob was a Cardinals third baseman for five years. Oh yeah. Lou, he was some good hitter. Yeah. He really, I, I remember he could drive fastball. Oh, Oh, 1-0 one and zero to gay. Uh, yeah, I remember. Uh, but and it's just like, who is this conversation for? What What are we doing? Why Why do Why is this this whole alternate language of how we announce a baseball game that doesn't have anything in common with anything else in the world? So I, anyway, end a rant. I feel like we could make baseball a little better. First
1: of all. 238 gets me to about 15 million a year I think at this point in baseball <laughs> you know if I'm uh, getting enough home runs but uh, I, so what you're describing let's, let's let's walk this through instead of having kind of a neutral quote unquote uh, national broadcast, you'd have a split feed where you just take the team from, you know, say the Braves are playing the Red Sox. You take the Braves home announcers and the Red Sox, you put the ESPN umbrella over them for the night through some sort of agreement, and you can just flick to whichever one you want.
0: Yeah. Well, let's say you have a Dodgers game. Maybe you just have uh, two celebrities doing the game. Maybe the celebrities change. Maybe it's like a hang where it's almost like a podcast cross with the game. There's, all different ways you could go, that would be more interesting than watching A-Rod and whoever announcing a, a baseball game, I think is my point. I mean, I, at least let's try let's try some of them before we just get yeah. stuck with that for another year.
1: You, I mean, we have this effectively with the NBA and Major League Baseball already with the ability to sort of alternate between the broadcasts. So when you're watching the Celtics, will you watch strictly the Boston feed or will you flip over sometimes to the opposition broadcast to just see what they're saying?
0: It's funny. I always watch the opposing broadcast because oh, I'm really interested okay. to see what they say about the Celtics. And <laughs> it's, it's like having some, it's like having somebody come into your house and just start commenting on different things. And you're like, Oh yeah, I never noticed that about the chandelier and thing, you know, things <laughs> like that. But I think, I think there should just, I, I think we should be heading to a world, especially now where you can do stuff remotely, where there should be. I don't know, four to six feeds for some of these games. Like the BCS, you can't have enough feeds on that. You could do deals with multiple podcast companies, whatever. What do you think, Brian? Well, I think the, I think you're right. And I think, But I think the gold is to find the Peyton Manning of these things, right? We think it's
2: probably Phil Mickelson with golf who was on the Manning cast and was really yep. good at it and kind of took it over for a quarter and was kind of asking them questions. He kind of, oh, Peyton, you get out of the driver's seat. I, I got this he'd obviously be fantastic for golf if he were interested in doing it. And a, and a Phil broadcast that didn't have the Jim Nance, CBS, uh, running Brooks and, and, and flowering plants and had just a little more edge would be fantastic. So I, but, but it's hard to find those guys. But that yeah. would be the nirvana for any of these sports.
0: By the way, yesterday was a great example of when you needed the banning cast. Two terrible games for different reasons. Bear, Bears Raiders was close, but was horrific. And then, uh, and then the Vikings bears game was just grim, like really kind of like almost sad. And that's where (laughs) you really needed. Like I could have used Kevin Hart in the second half of that game, (laughs) talking to the bannings about nothing. But, uh,
1: I think I I was thinking, I was just thinking about those games last night, watching them was like, this is the kind of game that the NFL tries to hide on a Sunday schedule. like just kind of like put it behind a couple of curtains and hope no one sees it. And, Putting it in prime time really just reveals it for what it is.
0: Well, Brian, I've known you for a while now. How many years have we known each other? Ten years at a least. While. Ten years at least. And even before, we'd probably talked even before that. but we've been working together ten years. One of our favorite things in media is the overreaction to a trend that's seemingly working when you have a bunch of, you know, maybe not the most uh, inspired thinkers Thinking that something is working, and quadrupling down on it in the worst possible ways. We're going to see some really bad versions of the Manicast. and I, I just can't wait. My fingers are crossed. How about you?
2: Absolutely, and and just think of how many bad ideas ESPN had before the Manning cast. <laughs> I'm not talking about money enough football. I'm talking about everything. Yeah, you know, just like with a lot of bad, a lot of ooh that didn't work. So yeah. absolutely absolutely the people that run sports television networks will try and fail to duplicate this and it will be really really
0: bad in some cases i cannot wait uh anything else on the main cast jason did we cover everything i think we got it okay all right we'll take uh let's take one more break and then i have some studio show stuff for you It's hard not to think about 2021 without thinking about the, uh, Maria Taylor, Rachel Nichols, ESPN, NBA countdown, what an absolute debacle that was. And really one of the rare sports media stories that didn't have a lot of winners everywhere, except for, I guess, Malika Andrews, just cause she didn't get hit by any of the shrapnel. Um, but a bigger issue popped up and I've been thinking about it because I was thinking about it last week there was this clip that passed around on social media from the CBS NFL show. And it was Phil Simms talking about analytics. And it's it's one of the dumbest 59 seconds you're ever gonna spend. You must have seen it, Brian, where he's basically, he's poo-pooing on analytics while also (laughs) admitting he doesn't understand them at all. And it's just like, it's a complete train wreck. And it led to a couple days of people going, oh my God, how is this guy still on TV? And I got to thinking like that's the first time anybody's really thought about the CBS pregame slash halftime show all year. And I guess my question is, do studio shows matter at all anymore? Because I feel like they once really mattered when, when we were kids. And I remember the NFL today with Brent Musburger of Cross Phyllis George was like a really important show. Jane Kennedy stepped in and she was the most beautiful woman in the world. And just he just was like, Oh my God, this is the most one of the most important shows of my life. And then the years pass. My working theory, I'm workshopping this one for you guys. Are podcasts ruining studio shows? Do we have so much sports conversation every day? that's really high level and focused, and you can get whatever you want, and you can get team specific, you can get league specific, your personality specific, that by the time we get to a studio show, everything's kind of been said, and it just feels like they're doing karaoke of all the topics we've already heard. What do you think, Brian? I th- I think you're
2: right, and I think what's what's happened is interesting because sports writing and sports media broadly has gone down two tracks. The stuff online and on podcasts has gotten smarter and smarter and more and more complex. And the stuff on TV is slightly more complex for the most part than it was when you and I were watching in like 1989. You know, and whenever I talk to TV executives, the thing they're most scared of is not being dumb. It's actually being too smart. And it's for somebody in the audience, that one person who doesn't know much about football, who doesn't watch a ton of football to watch something go, I don't understand that. I don't understand what that man is talking about. So you've got podcasting, which is trying to be like, I don't know, like the level of sophistication of succession or something like that. (laughs) And then you've got sports TV, which is trying to be ALF or trying to be, you know, growing pains, right? It's just trying to go right down the middle. And it's not a problem that it's going down the middle. The problem is the other stuff has gotten so, so interesting and sophisticated that it makes it look really, really basic and really simple by comparison.
0: Jason.
1: I just don't think it's necessary for them to be incredibly relevant i mean you sort of asked the important existential question at the top which is what purpose do they serve and i think for most part you know with very few exceptions like the tnt uh studio show they exist at the pleasure of the leagues that put the leagues on these networks and and the networks pay a great deal of money to do it and that's part of the deal and i think that they you know, occupy space, they probably achieve a higher rating than if you you know, were running cartoons up until, you know, one o'clock on Sunday, it's a better bit of programming for you. But it's not essential for them to be provocative or even great because what it really is supposed to be is some sort of appetizer, some sort of, you know, preparation for the big event, which is the game itself. So I don't think that the networks are terribly invested in the idea of creating these, you know, Everyone's talking about controversial foot on the third rail kind of programming because their main interest is preserving the relationship with the league and keeping that going.
0: Well, you talk about the concept of a pregame show. What is it? What are we getting out of it? And that's been something that I think a lot of people have been trying to figure out forever. But in the old days, a pregame show really mattered because you were learning information that you might not have known, right? Then, Then Twitter ruins that piece. You were diving into topics that maybe people haven't dove into yet. Well, now any podcast is going to hit the topic before you get to it. So what I've noticed is it's a lot of hyperbole now in the pregame show, even more than usual, because you you almost feel like, well, when it comes to me, I've got to say something. So on a podcast, you know, I might talk with Zach Lowe for an hour about do Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown make sense together? This is a real topic with Celtic fans right now. Do these two guys? Does it make sense to have these guys for the next ten years? Are they redundant? Is this a winning formula? Would it make sense to trade one of them? Which one would you trade? Would you keep it? Would you watch it longer? It's a conversation that has a shitload of nuance. It it would take forty five minutes to unpack if Zach and I, or me and KOC, whoever we did it properly, I wouldn't want to do it in five minutes on a pregame show. That's like 30 seconds and you, you're you basically coming in hot and you're going, guys, I don't think Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown can play together. And it's like, whoa, can, oh, <laughs> oh my God. It's like, nope, I just don't think they work. I think you got to trade one of them. And then it goes to the next guy. It's like, I disagree. It's, it's taking too long. All right. You wouldn't have enough time yet. You got to give these guys more of a time. And then it goes to the next guy. Well, you know, I guess it depends on what you get. And we kind of know it's like pregame karaoke, but it's not a conversation anyone wants to have. And as I watch these pregame shows, whether it's football or basketball, like so often, I don't know who the conversations are for. So I I guess that's my starter for you.
1: I would just say that I get what you're saying for sort of a heavy NBA consumer, but as as enterprises, they're really apples to oranges. It's a totally different endeavor. Like a pregame show... You're just trying to get from the first state farm ad to the next state farm ad. Okay. <laughs> right. And when I'm, <laughs> when I'm listening to the podcast, to, to the press box or the Bill Simmons show or any other podcast, and I do it mostly making school lunches, doing dishes, no offense. I mean, that's, it's ambient entertainment. Yeah. It's a different thing. You're not just trying to get my attention to go on to the next advertising package that comes with it, of course, but it's just a different flow to it. And I don't think that it's fair. Or reasonable to ask that these shows have that kind of depth because there's nothing in television that does. There's no television news that has the little the literal equivalent of any sort of podcast or print equivalent.
0: Yeah, I don't know the answer, but I do think, you know, as as first take has gotten more and more powerful, and I think has shaped not just how everybody else tries to do these shows, but also honestly how some of the people behave on the shows now. I think people really have amped you not going to name names, but there's people that have really amped up their personalities because yes, first take is the standard. So they feel like they have to do their show. And it's like, it's a little louder. It's a little more hyperbole. But if you watch first take, especially this NFL season, which feels like it's been going on since 2015, um, (laughs) <laughs> it's just every week it's like the Chiefs are dead. No, the Chiefs are alive. And right. Sal and I are guilty right. of it too on Sunday nights. It's it's this right. roller coaster right. ride. And then you come on those shows in the morning. It's like Dak Prescott is not the MVP. Not only is that, I'm not sure he's a top 10 quarterback in the league anymore. And then two weeks later, it's like Dak Prescott's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And it's just kind of what we're doing now. And it just feels like as what Jason said, Brian. It does feel like apples and oranges now, but I just like the nuance more. And I don't know where TV fits in as we head toward 2022. I also think the pregame shows are just overproduced. There's this
2: masturbatory kind of thing where it's like, okay, Phil's going to talk for 30 seconds and then Nate, right. and it's going to go to Nate and he's going to say something completely different for 30 seconds and then Bill yeah. Cowher or whatever. And then and then back to JB and he's going to wrap it all up. And it's like, I'm watching and I'm like, I can't follow anything that is happening here. Remember this? We got into this with the NBA thing on ESPN last year. You're not having a human, even if to me, if it was a hot take conversation, I would take that over this stage thing where everybody makes a point for 20 seconds and passes the rock around. And then JB throws it to the state farm ad because I can't actually follow that. I watch that and I go, I have no idea about what
0: was just said here. The five people is brutal. And I can't believe they still do it in this day and age. Like, I honestly can't. I can't believe they would put five people, but like, the CBS thing which i've watched pieces of i actually think boomer's good i think boomer's a good announcer he i think he's good been. when he when he does color on games i think he's like excellent when he talks on a pregame show i actually care what he thinks and then but there's five people on the show so we're getting it's boomer for 20 seconds so we can go back to phil sims talking about how he doesn't understand analytics well,
1: what, we're, we're we're talking to, we're talking about two different things here cuz i think you're talking about on one hand the sort of like benign pregame showization the fact that these pregame shows are just rote and uninteresting then the other thing you're talking about is the sort of way the day in sports now works where i agree with you there is such a um uh emphasis on being the provocateur and actually has kind of a rhythm to the day um you know like it almost feels like you have people come on in the morning on these networks and they kind of like shoot those like flares up into the air and just kind of see if anyone (laughs) sees the flare and reacts to the flare and if they react to the fair a flare then it's sort of off to the races and you have a whole day of reaction to the you know flare right it's like Somebody says somebody is the worst this, and then you have a full day of programming based upon that provocation. And you just see it repeated. It's kind of sad sometimes because every once in a while you see the flare kind of go up and then limply come down. But I think (laughs) Ryan... Well, they have to go, whoa, right after the flare. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But Brian has written, you know, or, or talked about this elegantly, which is that what has effectively happened here, uh, not to bite the hand that feeds me, is that this is just a replacement of the arc of the columnist that the newspaper columnist used to serve this function in the sports media economy. Of did you read that this morning? I can't believe he said that about. Yogi Berra, or whomever it was at the time that the, the the agenda was set by the morning newspaper columnist and everybody on talk radio and beyond reacted to that. And Now it's sort of just TV self-cannibalizing.
0: You know, Jason... I don't know if you know this, Brian. Jason writes the last general sports column in America. <laughs> what? It's just him. He's He is the last one. It's just where he's reacting to stuff. No, we got stuff. a few others. We got I, other I, wet I really we admire... Few I I admire that you actually you still make them really readable and enjoyable and it's this art that's just gone. But I think a good example of what Jason's talking about, I just remember like when I wrote, when I was writing comms, when I was even dating back to college, but especially in the late nineties, early two thousands, sometimes the most fun ones were like, I don't totally believe this, but I'm going to fucking argue the shit out of it. and you know, that's like the, put like my political science background was like, it's like history crossed with opinion. And it's like, all right, here's my case. Now I'm going to argue it. And those were my favorite ones to write. Like I would write pieces about, here's why Tom Brady's more of a winner than Peyton Manning is, which is an absurd thing that would be trolled down. But back then it's like, all right, I 68% believe this. I'm going to sell the shit out of it and make my case. I'm not going to have the self-conscious three paragraphs of To be sure. Now here are the counter. To be sure. To be sure. And and, well, given that meaning also, and it's just like, no, that doesn't help my argument. My argument is this. And to Jason's point, now pregame shows have become the 2001 version of a sports column where it's like, like, I guarantee the CBS pregame show on Friday, they'll have the meeting and it'll be like, all right, who wants to do the Baltimore should keep Tyler Huntley and trade Lamar? Take and everyone looks around, and Kara's like, All right, I'll do it. And then it goes to Cow, and it's like, Uh, and and Bill, you think Baltimore maybe they should have a different plan for 2022. You're right, JB. I think maybe you trade Lamar Jackson, you get a ton of draft, you could build around Huntley. Whoa, <laughs> oh, 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 let's cut to Phil Sims. Uh, uh, uh. And then it's three minutes, and that's the segment. They don't, none of them believe it, but that's what we did twenty years ago. Now, but this is why pregame shows, I think, have become absurd. And I feel like every one of these shows now is doing this, where it's like, how can we get a ninety-second clip on social media with the right kind of headline? Stephen A. thinks Dak is never going to make it in Dallas? Question mark headline. You know, I don't know how'd we get here, Brian. Bye. First of all,
2: I love us podcasters patting ourselves on the back because, you know, we're not just ginning up content to get between state farm ads. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. we're, we're ginning up content to get between sleep number ads. Damn it. Yeah, That yeah. company that sends you <laughs> meals to make it home. That's what we do here. Right. Those lousy pregame shows. <laughs> I, I honestly think I'll just go back to what I said a second ago. Just let the, you should let people talk and you should let people talk naturally. Like it should be like human speech. And and maybe it gets hot takey, maybe it's dumb, but at least the people have a chance to just talk and don't try to turn it into something we go, boom, 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 here we go. Boom, boom, take, just, just, just give it, get, take a breath, make one point, discuss the one point. We can read the rest on Twitter and then send us back to the game.
0: Well, this is why the TNT show continues to win year after year, even though it's a little surlier than usual this year. The generation gap, I think, has become more profound than ever on that show. They really, Barkley, like, just genuinely has disdain for some of the guys played now. You know, like, he really yeah. is like, Anthony yeah. Davis, I don't, you're never going to make it. I don't understand. Like, it's, There's, like, a residual <laughs> anger with him now that's surprising.
1: Yeah, I mean, and they have the magic touch, which is that they have the gravitas. They have the Hall of Fame. They yeah. have the rings. And, you know, it is not the kind of thing where... Uh, you're sitting there wondering about the credentials of the people making the criticisms. And also, like they do have that kind of amusing Sattler and Waldorf quality. I don't take what they say as some sort of like strident, overbaked criticism. I take it with a grain of salt, because they're more likely to say the opposite in a week and a half.
0: Well, I was worried that once that show got old, which happens to everybody, I remember Madden and Summerall seemed like this unstoppable force, and then eventually... Somewhere else started screwing up. Madden started seeing like Madden karaoke, and then it's kind of over. It'll happen with the TNT show. I do think Draymond Green has a chance to be great at this. Yeah, when uh, when he can him. get on there. Yeah, when he, I feel like we have a succession plan, uh, Logan Roy style, for uh, for the day when Barkley decides. And Barkley, you know, first he was claiming he was going to be done when he was fifty. Now he's saying he's going to be done when he's sixty. Now Draymond's going to keep playing for a while. There might be a window between when Barkley leaves but Draymond's not ready to take over yet, that's going to be awkward. And you feel it when Barkley's not on that show. I'm just not, when he's not on the show, I'm just not interested. And maybe that's just me, but um, there's going to be an overlap that won't be great. But Draymond eventually, I think will be the guy. I've seen enough. My My scouts have come in with their verdict. He is a generational talent. What's weird is, Football, I guess Manning was the generational talent but he's doing the Manning cast. But that's the guy. Manning and Romo, I guess, were two guys. Romo is feels a little karaoke-ish this year. I'm a little worried about where that's going. Yeah. Can we talk about that for a second? Because I feel yeah. there's been a Romo turn.
2: Yeah. Let's he, do it. He came in and my uh my friend Richard Deitch, you know, said he's the best color analyst in football ever. You know, better, better than Madden. He was just, he was, he was killing it. And I'm I'm watching this, and it reminds me as a Cowboy fan of Tony Romo, the quarterback, <laughs> which is when he's improvising, when, when he's improvising, he can be brilliant, right? When it's in the moment, ooh, I'm going to spin in the pocket, and I'm going to draw this, and I'm going to tell you how this play happened. Ooh, Jim, ooh, Jim, I'm going to tell you this. But the thing is, he doesn't seem like he has prepared the way other broadcasters have. Just like he didn't seem like his he was like Brady and Manning and those guys in terms of what he was doing before games started when he was a quarterback. Yeah. Like Tony the broadcaster seems a ton like like brilliant, amazing. And then also you watch games and like the Super Bowl last year was not good. He he did not he had nothing in the second half when that game was over. You know, he was it was just like yeah. you don't have anything, man. You don't have anything to say. And that's what's the difference between a John Madden, somebody who's the best of all time, uh, Chris Collinsworth. Those guys know they have to entertain when games are bad, and I do not think Tony Romo can do that.
1: Brian, are you saying this as a media critic or as a Cowboys fan?
0: Uh, uh, both. I think <laughs> a haunted version of both. Yeah, the Cowboys. The Cowboys stuff definitely bled into that one. I'll tell you, the best team I've heard all year, <laughs> and I don't think it's close, is Burkhart and uh, Greg Olson. Ooh, I think. Hands down, not even close. I think they've been the best this year. And to the point where they got assigned the Pats Colts game on Saturday. And I was psyched. I was like, this is awesome. I can't wait to hear them announce this game. Olsen's going to tell me some things about my team that I haven't heard on another broadcast. And they were really good. He was all over it the whole game on the mistakes and the penalties and some of the stuff they were doing, Hunter Henry. like he He was just on it. And I think they're the best right now. I think Romo can get the title back, but I'm with Brian. I, I think he's got to work a little harder on, um, on not just being like, oh, huge play, Jim, huge play. Like he's, the karaoke piece is starting to seep in a tiny bit and that you got to be really careful with that because once that happens, there's no going back. There just isn't. And yeah. we've seen it with a lot of different media people.
1: Tony has this uh like, oh Jim, like he's like seeing a car on the highway with a mattress that's about to fly <laughs> off, you know. He's just like <laughs> uh
0: I also really enjoy Gus Johnson and Akib Talib. They were doing uh, Detroit, Arizona on Sunday, and it was just the perfect match of announcers and a batshit crazy mm-hmm. game that made no sense whatsoever. Uh I really like that. So, yeah, last point on studio shows. It's interesting to me that the Maria Rachel thing was by far the most interesting studio thing that's happened in a while and i think it's just because people don't really care what happens on these studio shows as much anymore unless 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 it's something with Barkley and those guys and that's really it we'll find out if there's an f1 studio show down the road that can have that kind of impact all right we're gonna take a break and then uh we're talking about the athletic all right so We've avoided talking about The Athletic on the sports reporters, And I think in general, people are hesitant to kind of question at least some of the information that we have out there, just because there's a lot of jobs. And in some cases, we know some of the people that work for them. And I think everybody's rooting for them to to do well. There's been a lot of different reports about how they're trying to get sold. Layout. The last couple of days, multiple reports, the New York Times and The Athletic, they're in exclusive negotiations, stuff like that. They, this has been in real time watching how they've tried to present what this is as media entity. It's been pretty fascinating. A lot of it has been about first it was we're going to destroy newspapers, then it was like we have the ability to raise money in the venture community as like an asset, and they did multiple rounds and they've raised a shitload of money. They've raised, depending on the reports, between one hundred and forty and one hundred and fifty million. The information did a big piece about them that said. They burned through nearly a hundred million in cash in 2019, 2020 combined. People started to get worried. Well, what does that mean? How are they going to have to raise cash again? This is a lot of inside baseball stuff. Um, I guess my question is, has this worked? Because it seems like they're going to get sold. And if they get sold, you could say it's going it, to, that it, that it did work, Right. On the other hand, I feel like they missed a lot of opportunities and they've had to play catch up with a lot of mistakes that they've made over the last five years where they had a really good idea on paper and over and over again, it seemed like they went down the wrong path. but it still seems like it's going to end up in an okay place. And they're going to, if they can sell it to the New York times, then it ended up in the right place. Um, What do you think when you think about the last five years of the athletic, Brian, just watching it from afar? It's a big topic and I think you have to split it into two
2: things. One is the economic piece, you know, what what's going to happen to them? Are they going to survive? Are they going to get sold to the New York Times? And the other is the editorial piece. You know, just what have they done? And I think it's easy to conflate those two things because of, you know, the declaration at the beginning that we're killing newspapers and we're going to wait out until the newspapers bleed out and that was got everybody to look at those two dudes and go, "I, I we don't like these guys." Yeah. We don't like these guys. Meanwhile, you have this Legion of people, mostly newspaper people, some other people, just being like writing cowboy stories, (laughs) you know, who who are not trying to knife newspapers in the stomach and leave them bleeding in the street. They're just like, here's a good cowboy story. Here's a feature. Here's 20 thoughts on the game. So it's all, to me, it's almost two different questions. I agree with you. If they get sold to the New York Times, if they get a decent price for it, the New York Times is probably the best place they could possibly be, you know, in terms of. A media company that cares about words and cares about preserving them i'm not sure everybody's going to make it if that happens but that's a good result and i think the editorial thing it's really hard to get my mind around because there's so many people at the athletic athletic is not 10 it's not page two right it's you know a legion of people and i read the dallas people mostly i go out and read other people but i've really liked them because i thought dallas which has one newspaper like almost every other city needed competition they, the people there do different stuff. A lot of them are really different. So I have really enjoyed reading it day to day. Jason?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to to echo what you guys said at the top, I would just say as a rule, I am going to stand on behalf of any company or organization still interested in publishing the printed word uh, digitally or otherwise. And I think The Athletic has more than proven itself uh, that it can deliver and scoops, whether it's the NBA national women's soccer league stuff with the astros and cheating that was a scoop of a lifetime um you know i think the worry is on the business side that they went for scale you know the model of flooding the zone and, and growing the geography at all costs before the business necessarily catches up and you know that's a tricky business we've seen in other things you know if you're doing ride sharing or selling houses and you know almost surely if you're investing in reporters and the print of words so i want it to work uh you know and i wanted to work for everyone but i just don't know at what size an enterprise works best and you know i'm curious to ask you because you have a little bit of experience with this I and mean, you guys stayed pretty lean and mean you might think of yourselves as like a big company but i mean you were what a hundred you know at the time of the sale around that i mean it does appear that you know stuff whether it's Ringer or Defector or even Substack, you know, small is the safe approach here. That overexpansion expansion is that what leads you into trouble?
0: Yeah, it's I didn't like when they were talking about destroying newspapers. I thought that was really tacky. And it 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 I, I was rooting for the people that work for it while at the same time thinking like those guys sound like dicks. Um I think some of the stuff with you know, it, it goes back to like five, six years ago, right? Where when people are trying to sell companies, they would just point to whatever their revenue number was. And it didn't matter if they lost money or not. It was like, well, we're, we're making this amount of money, which is good. And kind of, are we losing this amount of money? Well, that's over here. And you saw some things get bought and eventually people were like, no, it's actually a bad sign. If you're losing money, are you making money? Or are you doing okay? And that as we headed to the end of the 2010s, people really started looking at that more carefully. So it's an old business model of, you can't just have the revenue, you have to prove you're a sustainable business. The stuff that worries me with them, I think they've spent close to like 200 million in the last like four plus years, right? Um, they've tried a bunch of different things that, that they moved away from. Like initially they mobilized around baseball and hockey, right? And we were watching it going, that's weird. Like, why wouldn't they mobilize around basketball and football? Then they corrected that over the next year. They started to do podcasts really late. And then when they did it, they put them behind a paywall, which is like, you have no chance with that. They did that weird thing where they tried to raise money and they were gonna do high-end video with people like Armin Katayan. And we're like, we're spending money where this whole video expansion, then they abandoned that pretty quickly. They did a lot of local podcasts. They tried to buy out soccer in England. And the whole time they're they're talking about their subs, and that we got this, we're at a million subs. But yet we were all getting like on Instagram and Facebook and all these different things, like you know one dollar for a year, one dollar a month for a year, and things like that. I thought it was gonna be harder for them to sell, but obviously they've been able to prove whatever their audience is. Like this is an audience they pay this, we can make this amount of revenue. And you look at the New York Times, and they're going, you know, they've been pretty. Adamant that they want to get to 10 million subs, I think by like the end of 2022. So they're basically buying all these subs. But the fact that they've been giving away these crazy subscription deals. I don't know, just watching from afar, that 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 seemed kind of weird. What did, what did you think just watching that, Brian? Well, it was, you know,
2: I think the thing was it kept getting lower and lower, you know, until it's almost we're paying you to subscribe to The Athletic. Right. We kept getting this lower and lower. And I was looking through my notes today before he came on, and I found this one that they sent out or maybe tweeted that had a picture of Robert Ory. Do you remember this? And Robert Ory said, I love The Athletic because it gives the player side of the story. It was like a testimonial. <laughs> it was almost like very players to from a, an ex player. And I was like, what, what am I even reading here? You know, a Robert Ori wants me to subscribe to the athletic. Okay. I, I just, yes. And that to me, I understand. Cause they're trying to get to a number, right? They're trying, as you say, they're trying to hit a number so They can go to the New York times, go to the place and say, look at this number of subscribers. That did make it feel to me very weird the whole time. The price getting lower and lower that whole thing of come on in, come on in. Trust me. Trust me. It was like early on in the athletic. Do you remember the comments? Did you ever hear about this? Had all these sports writers write me go. Do you read the comments in the athletic? Because they were all, a lot of the comments were like, "This is a great sports media product." Oh right, yeah. So happy I subscribed to this sports media product. <laughs> People are like you got to investigate the comments. They're not real. So there was right. a certain air about it. But again, I think it's, it was very different than what was actually being printed in the athletic and the stuff the guys were writing. But but strange.
0: Yeah, I think that they seem publicly trying to present these two things. Once their subs were growing, but they never put any context behind the subs. Are your subs growing because you're giving people 50 to 80% discounts on the subs or are they actually growing? Are those people renewing? And I think they have ways to track the renewal stats, but if the people are renewing, then their revenue should be way higher. So that, that part was weird. The other thing was they would they were leaking stories about, hey, we might be merging with so-and-so or these pers- people are circling us. And it kind of peaked a couple months ago when they something got leaked and they were talking about these suitors that were you know, trying to buy them, one of which was FanDuel. And FanDuel, on their earnings call, the COO like, literally says on the earnings call, by the way, there's this report about us trying to buy The Athletic. It's just not true. We're not trying to buy them. So I was like, all right, are they, are they scrambling now? And then there was a lot of, rumors about you know they do they have 8 months left of money and all that stuff when you're raising the amount of money that they raised and you're also losing money at some point where's the money coming from but it seems like they saw that and i guess now we're headed toward this new york times buying them peace and my question to you jason the new york times it, it i wouldn't say they were like unbelievably committed to the sports section over the last 10 years and they had one. They spent some money on it. But now they're going to be all in on covering all the teams and all these different sports. How does that play out?
1: Well, you're not going to get me to say a disparaging thing about my colleagues over on uh, West 43rd Street, but uh, I would say that they're going to be different. I think that there's going to be a completely different enterprise than the New York Times. I don't think it's going to be a merger where you're going to all of a sudden see the athletic inside the New York Times. I think that the um, the truth of the matter is that this is, you know, we don't know the particulars here. This sale might be a real thing. It might be a complete apparition, but there's, uh, I it, you know, it remains to be seen what form the athletic would take with the Times as a buyer or anybody as a new buyer. It's hard so to you imagine. Don't, you don't that think, it, think it would be in the, the website?
0: You don't think they would actually like incorporate it and it would be all part of the same thing? Because I don't see how that makes sense otherwise.
1: Um, I think it's actually the inverse that, like, they would use the athletic. If the athletic is what it is, th- that that the athletic becomes a vessel to bring people into the New York Times, like, not the opposite. So, I mm-hmm. don't think it's like a value add for a New York Times subscriber. It's a way for the New York Times to grab. Now, I am really out of my element here. This is much more a Brian Curtis to- Kurt- topic, but like, I would just, I, I think that that's the way that it would work. The New York Times looks at the athletic as a way for it to build in parts of the country and markets that it doesn't feel that it has capitalized upon enough and to grow audience there for the main mothership, uh, not like, oh, here's this thing for New York Times. Subscribers. You, you will get it, I am sure, probably, with some version of a New York Times subscription. But I think it's going to work the other way.
0: What do you think, Brad? Well, I think it's interesting
2: because uh, you're right. The New York Times, is the sports section has never been been arguably the smallest part of the paper i had one writer one tell me say we're like the comics at the new york times (laughs) you could probably argue the comics in the glory days of newspapers were a bigger deal than the sports section is at the new york times but in a way i think that would make a possible buyout actually more feasible because if they were buying politico for instance which was just for sale they would be duplicating a lot of things they already do but who at the new york times sports section really duplicates anything at the athletic tyler Kepner? on baseball, Ken Belson on the NFL, something like that. But you could see Tyler Kepner and Jason Stark existing in the same media entity. I don't think that would be a big deal. The Athletic does lots of investigations, like Katie Strang has done a bunch of really fantastic ones in 2021. I could totally see a ProPublica, you know, style thing of, you know, in the New York Times and The Athletic present this big investigation of baseball, you know, or behind the scenes stuff on the various stories we have seen. I could totally see that happening. But I think Jason's right. I think it's I think it's to use a word I hate to use. I think it's a separate product Hmm. rather than something that becomes the New York Times a sports section. I think it's a product. They use that like crosswords, you know, they have as a thing cooking they have as a thing. And that becomes in this again, if it happens, it's still hard for me to believe this is really going to happen. But talking to people this week inside the athletic, they expect it to happen. So there we are. And I think that's probably the, the scenario if it does. What do You, you think? said that
1: with real Jay Glazer flair. Talking to people inside <laughs> the Oh my god.
2: I wasn't I to watching <laughs> too many pregame shows. Yeah, I wish you were uh, standing in front of a green know. screen.
1: I, I, I gotta stick up for a second for just newspapers. In that I hear what you're saying that like the sports section in a paper like the New York Times or even the Wall Street Journal is a smaller fragment compared to the overall news product. But I just want to underline, and you both know this because you're both very good to newspapers, but You know, when you're reading about, or you're hearing people talking on television about a controversial topic, about a major news story, about something that is shaking the leagues, I guarantee you that nine times out of 10, that story was broken by a good old fashioned newspaper. And they serve an incredibly vital function in the sports media economy.
2: I I agree with that. I think the Times has just decided a couple of years ago, we're not going to do news of the day sports. We're going to do a different kind of sports. It should be largely driven by features it's not going to be like here lebron did something last night here's the thing about lebron yeah which is what the but athletic we don't is do that. which is what the I, athletic I mean
1: we don't do that we don't do that either where i work i mean the wall street journal sports page in the print product is one or two pages it's substantially more digitally but we don't have beat coverage i mean rather like you know on the road beat coverage of individual teams i mean we're a national newspaper an international newspaper and it doesn't make any sort of economic or audience sense for us to do it that way i think that what you're describing is also an evolution of what a digital audience is today i mean we all grew up in an era where newspapers printed pages and pages of agate you know like you know just like Miles of stats where you'd sit down there. Remember the Boston Globe Sunday where you'd could read all the Houston Astro statistics over breakfast. I mean, these sections have changed in response to what is available elsewhere immediately.
0: I think both of you are wrong. I don't think <laughs> I don't think the New York Times is a local newspaper anymore. I think there's something else. I don't think of them as a New York paper. Like I I was in Boston and you you go to Boston and they have like here are scholastic <laughs> Uh, our preseason high school basketball team for division two. And there's a whole long article about it. Like the New York times isn't doing something like that anymore, which makes me wonder like, all right, if you buy the athletic, you're trying to become, you know, way more national than local. Could that lead to them potentially like you buy a couple other newspapers other than the ones they already own. And you're basically becoming this kind of giant national new like, Huge national, but also worldwide newspaper. I I don't know what the ambition would be, but I, I I think that's what they're thinking, right? To them, subs are subs. They don't care where the subs come from. It's not like oh, we need to build our New York base. They're thinking like America and global and people overseas, and the more the merrier. What am I missing, Brian? No, I agree with
2: all that. I think it's just it's just interesting given the way they've approached sports, given their commitment to sports versus business politics yep. literally any other subject international coverage in the, the Iraq war anything else in the newspaper that they would choose to go in on this but again i yep. said like i said i think it works in a way because it doesn't duplicate the thing that they already do that those other subjects would
0: is it possible the times just has too much money right now
2: they're kind of the last 80s newspaper well, i mean we can throw that we can throw the journal in there we can throw the washington post in the end of the podium but yep. you know, there was a time when all three of us were alive where newspapers almost had too much money and they were just like, oh, let's open a bureau. Let's let's do some and great for us, right, as newspaper readers. But the Times is almost the last paper that really can toss money around like that.
0: Uh, speaking of tossing money around, Amazon, who it's just a lot of stories about how they're gonna get involved in football, and then they actually have been involved in at least Thursday Night Football, but now now they're going to get really involved in football next year. And it seems like, wait, is next year Thursday Night Football, right, Brian?
2: That's right.
0: They're going to do the Fred Godelli circa two, 2006. Just let's get the best of everything. We'll overpay for everything. We don't care. Money's no object. Basically what Dick Edmarsall did, which was smart. Um, are people ready to watch live sports on Amazon in this way, in your opinion?
2: Well, if they have exclusive football, which they will next year, yes. I mean, to me, the answer is if you want to you turn your, your digital company into a sports network, having exclusive football games, NFL games, the way to go. So, yeah. And if it has uh, Uncle Al doing play-by-play, which I think it probably will, and a big-time color guy and some kind of production-sharing thing with NBC, then absolutely, absolutely they will. What do you think, Jason?
1: I think it's you know somewhere in between that and you know it' also gonna be an incredible vessel for every television agent in the business to uh drive up prices and contracts and things like that because it's presumed that they have a bottomless reservoir of capital and so anybody that has a contract up, whether it's with a league or with a you know to do play by play or whatever it is uh they're gonna serve a sort of very valuable function there too
0: mm. I don't know what to make of it. I think for some reason it's hard for me in my head. I still like and I'm old, but I still like having ca- a cable channel and being able to flick between different things, right? Whether it's direct TV for the football Sundays or um even on a Monday night if they like the pressing the last button between the NBA TV game and Monday night football, whatever it is. Now now I have to go to Amazon, now I'm in Apple TV. Now I have to go to I'm on Apple TV or Roku, whatever I have. I'm on Amazon. They have to kind of figure out how to make that easy as a viewer for me to channel surf versus like me just being trapped with the game because I I think that's a big piece of this. I think when you're... Do I want to be trapped with Vikings bears last night for three hours? I don't.
1: (laughs) I just don't. I I totally... I I totally agree with that. And I also think it resembles a little bit of the conversation people have about newspapers and the digital environment. They're like, well, you know, how do you organize it and how do you get people to read stuff that they're not inclined to read? And like, well, what if you made it printed out and you handed it to them and every morning they could go through a whole bunch of stories? Like what you're describing, Bill, basically is cable television. Right. You know, a product that we all presumed was, you know, inferior to what the streaming product would be, but had its, its real conveniences. And I'm with you, Well, you have to sort of like log out of a platform, whether it's Amazon Fire to go to, you know, all these kinds of things. It is kind of labor intensive. And then I look down on the couch and my son is watching 500 Mr. Beast videos back to back. So I don't know where the whole thing is going.
0: Yeah, I guess if you think about like the TV app for Sunday Ticket, which is technically how this would work for Amazon, right? It's pretty easy to skim around in those games and you can watch like the Arizona Detroit game and then you can flick to the left and watch. So, so maybe that's how it would go. I think the technology would have to be really good. It does seem like it's heading this way. And, and, you know, I don't know what this means long-term. Like what if Netflix just says, fuck it. And they get into down the road, like what happens? We've talked about all this stuff before, but it does feel like this is something. Like, this is a moment. I didn't, Brian wrote that great piece about the uh, when Fox stole football in 1994 and everything it meant to them. I, is there any way for Amazon to even have a moment like that, Brian? Because people are already going to Amazon Prime.
2: Yeah. I mean, well, this felt like the last football contract negotiation for the networks. Like, this felt like the last deep breath that network television was going to take and say, we still, we still run the world because we've still got... What? 90% of the football, 95% of the football on our, on our air. And to your point, by the way, about the ease of this, don't, it's not just cable television that, that, that football is on. It's free television that football is on. Whenever the stuff with the NBA and we talk about the networks, I'm always like the NFL puts most of their stuff out on television that my mom who doesn't have cable can get on Sunday. She can basically not get anything else, but she can get the Cowboys and she can get the big NFL games of the week. And I think, think that's this is a huge part of it. And I kind of thought, well, will somebody step to the plate this time? Will Netflix or Amazon come and just say, we're going to give you billions of dollars to take that away from you? But they didn't. So it's the network's game for the time being.
1: I'm
0: going to make the, the point, out of any point I've made on this entire podcast, the point Jason's going to enjoy the most. So... I I'm sure you I'm sure you've dealt with your parents and had had their relation to the streaming networks and the passwords and how complicated everything is. This is like 60% of the conversation I have with my dad and my mom who are by the way divorced and don't even live in the same house, but <laughs> everything is about I can't get on HBO Max, what's your password again? Do you know why Amazon isn't working? I want to watch this show, is it on Netflix like If you go 60 and above, I feel very comfortable saying this without blowback. (laughs) It just seems every year you get added after 60, you become more confused by streaming. My mom, she gets so upset. I've had to go over, or my wife has had to go over, I would say 10 times over the last two years because she doesn't understand why she can't get this, why they got. Putting football on Amazon is gonna cause some real problems for an entire demographic (laughs) of people who are just like, where do I get this? Where do I find it? And we have not made the streaming thing that seamless for really a lot of people who watch TV. And that's just a fact. Oh,
1: I agree a hundred percent. And as evidence, I'll submit, I wrote the uh, world nine million. So I love the Beatles documentary column the other day. And I was impressed by how many readers wrote saying I can't get this cause I don't have Disney plus or I don't even have a cable box or I don't, you know, know how to stream. Like, how is this going to, are they going to show this for free at some point? Like, you know, the Lawrence Welk show. I mean, it was amazing, uh, uh, reminder of, you know, there is a still a significant population of people who don't believe in paying for television and they're missing out on conversations. And I don't think it's necessarily fair. when, as Brian says? If it's something like, uh, Football, it can be a real market advantage for them to be free over the top like that.
0: I, my mom was like, two weeks ago, she's like, all right, I'm going to watch that Get Back. That, I'm going to watch the Beatles doc. I heard you talk about it on your podcast and two other people. <laughs> and I'm going to watch it. Do I have Disney Plus? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. This is, this is your TV. Go on your Apple TV. And she's like, I do have it, but I don't know my... So now, now I'm sending her the password. She still can't get in. And needless to say, she never watched the Beatles doc. And I do, I do. This it's not going to be like ten million people, but it will be some people who are just like Amazon. Do I? How do I get there? Where do I find it? Yep. Is it there? Do I yep. click on it? It stopped. Yep. And yep. that's going to happen. Have,
1: and and you, and you still have good old fashioned carriage disputes. I'm a uh, Direct TV stream subscriber. We don't have the NFL Network. Mm. Do not have my Peter Schrager in the morning on direct TV stream. I, I I hope that can be rectified,
0: uh, Brian, just for the record, I can't wait for probably less than ten years when I become one of these people with whatever the yes. next iteration when we have like snap your fingers, the screen just comes up on your wall. <laughs> and I'm calling no, the, my, I'm calling my daughter and I'm just like, hey, it's like my goggles aren't working again, yes. I will note, just Bill, for your own personal
2: situation, that when a Patriots game next year is on Amazon, it will be on local TV, free TV in Boston, in addition to being on Amazon, just to set you up for any conversation you might
0: wind up. That will past. help with my dad. Um, yeah, that that you're right. That's good. Having the local things, I think that is a bonus. But well, we'll see. All right. Uh, last thing on our list was oh. I, I'm gonna. I'm giving uh, Jake Paul the Innovator of the Year award for 2021. <laughs> the, the, the only person who could make pay-per-views that my son, like 10, 10 minutes before they're about to be on, like, Dad, we got to get this. I don't know how he did it, but he somehow become WWE, there's UFC, and then there's Jake Paul. And those are like the three entities now that can just go direct to the consumer and get pay-per-view shit going. How did he do this? Why do we care? I'm just opening that up for the floor.
1: I I mean, I would just say that he's choosing the best possible business to do it in, boxing, which is historically this reservoir of stunts and bad ideas. And like, you know, it's a sport of free agents. It's promoter driven. uh, There's all kinds of bad characters. Um, It's a single purchase sport where there's an incredible value on being a name brand. And that puts all this premium on you know, famous people and big fights. And I think what's happening with both of the Pauls is that they've sort of hacked the sport. You know, they've just kind of said, well, we'll catch up with the boxing part, but we're name brands right now. And we know there's enough people out there who care about what we do or hate us so much, which is an important part of this, too. They hate us so much that they'll watch what we do, hoping we'll, you know, get ground to a pulp that it's working. So I think what they've really done, you know, like, and it doesn't matter if the fights turn out to be terrible or people are arguing about the quality of them. It's like, that's like half of boxing. People are having that argument about, so, you know, they have basically figured out a way to hack a sport. And I, I think that like a lot of things, like the, the establishment, people were laughing at it, but now they're probably all looking to coattail it somehow.
2: Brian, I, um, I'm just glad we have stunts back in sports because it felt like we had a maybe 10, 20 year period where we didn't have enough stunts. But when, when I was a kid, I love stunts. I love fake sports. I love stunt sports. I just remember going up to a very bad, uh, but fast Cal- Dallas Cowboys wide receiver named Alexander Wright at an autograph signing. Who's signing my autograph and I go, Hey, um, do you think you can beat Daryl Green in the NFL's fastest man competition? <laughs> I literally asked him that. Because I cared that, that there was some stupid off-season thing where he would run faster than Daryl Green. And, what do you and think? It, yeah, it, uh, he, he, he gave me a nod and said, I can do it. And then he lost to Daryl Green, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> he got cut for the Cowboys a few years later. But I, I love that as a kid because it made sports just like really elemental and fun. So I I think I think just having more stunts. The match, by the way, the golf thing has been pretty entertaining. Not every one yeah. of them, but they've been pretty good. We yeah. need more stunts.
1: Yeah. I mean, Bill, do you think it's taken the, uh, the do you think it's, you know, you're, you're, I'm sure, a connoisseur of celebrity boxing over the years. Do you think it's taken the sad out of celebrity boxing? Because that was kind of a sad genre for a very long time. Yeah,
0: I think I have two columns in my archives somewhere from page two about how sad that era was. Yeah, at least these guys are taking it seriously. You know, I mean, I respect both of them because they're not just doing it to do it. Like they're actually really training and trying to be good at it. But to, to piggyback what Brian said, like this is what I grew up with. I grew up with wide world of sports and battle network stars and people jumping off 120 foot ladders and doing the, those crazy cliff dives they used to have that sometimes you'll see online and the superstars and you know watching, I don't know, Pele racing uh, Bob Greasy or whatever was going on. And it was just, it really worked. And there was a lot of people watching. We didn't have a lot of channels back then. So you could have like 15 million people watching the superstars and seeing if the Pittsburgh Steelers could beat the Dallas Cowboys in a tug of war or whatever it was. So uh, I agree with Brian. I'm glad it's back. I think the next evolution of it uh, is clearly people of different sizes fighting each other. Like Jake oh. Paul fighting Floyd May- Floyd Mayweather, where he's got what eighty pounds on him or whatever, like that kind of stuff. Where there's a size difference. Didn't we already have the- that? I mean, yeah, the but brother? I'm more of those. Yeah, more of those where it's like this: the little guy is more skilled, but the bigger guy has size. Um, I think all that stuff. All I know is my son never knows what's going on, but somehow knew with the Jake Paul thing. Uh, I guess the last that, thing. I mean-
1: Oh, i just going to ask Brian, like, do you believe there's any like slippery slope hazard here, Brian, that like, you know, what is the proper role for news orgs in covering this kind of stuff? Because ESPN just full on covers it now. You yeah. know, I wrote yeah. about one of the fights, um, a little bit of the cultural moment, not to put too much of a hi-hat on it, but I mean, people are now really covering it. Um, what's the right role?
2: Yeah, I thought you were gonna say slippery slope for boxing. I was like, oh, I don't <laughs> yeah.
0: sure. Oh no,
1: that slope has yeah. the sense has been achieved. <laughs> yeah, slope they're is at greased. Base, they're at base camp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've yeah, already to
0: our nests.
2: I I, you know, I follow the lead of a sports writer named uh, Bill Simmons from the early days of ESPN.com. I think if people are watching it, yeah. you should probably cover it. And that's because that's what people want
0: to read.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep.
0: Um well the the verb of the year, 2021, gambling.
1: Uh, the
0: gambling thing went nuts this year. And, you know, obviously we have a deal with FanDuel, but there's there's deals all over the place. And we are entering this new world of people who know nothing about gambling now giving their picks or, or boosts, or you're seeing these pregame shows and people awkwardly trying to shoehorn in some sort of well, there's so so and so minus three. Yesterday, we saw it with Bears Vikings, where they're openly talking about, you know, oh, but that the Bears not getting a kick an extra point there is going to really affect like people who had that, and in general, it's just gambling, gambling, gambling. When does it swing too far, Brian?
2: Yeah, I feel like this this era of sports writing, the two basic units of content are an NBA trade involving players that I've never heard of, or I'm not sure what team they play for. And somebody telling me to always trust their picks in the NFL. <laughs> and that's the things I hear constantly all the time. And I don't know that anybody actually knows <laughs> about any, anything about gambling, but it's just kind of the the fun of being the guy of being, trying to be Jimmy the Greek from the yep. old to go back to your CBS thing. But I, I do find if I had to get to Jason's point about how sports columnists have changed. I think one of the biggest things, you know, that happened in my lifetime is the sports columnist got replaced by the information guy. And I think in the world which is run by gambling, information guy is actually even more powerful than he was before. Because what do we want? We want injuries, we want trades, we want coaching change, we want COVID, uh, the you know, the COVID list. Like that's the stuff that powers these things. And if, if there's a prediction for 2022 and this is the easiest prediction ever, one of those huge insider guys is going to go work for a gambling company. Like, we're we're five minutes away from that happening. The money's too big. The information matches up exactly with what they're trying to feed us through gambling. And that that's going to happen in five minutes. I don't know which one it's going to be, but somebody, one of those big information guys is going to go work for a gambling company.
0: Mm. We'll see how it goes. I mean, uh, what do you got, Jason? I'm
1: probably the last. No, I'm just probably the last reporter left in the world not sponsored by DraftKings at MGM or Caesars Palace but I will say that I agree with Brian that that is going to be the next frontier we may all end up working for casinos um but I do feel like Pretty big like like greedy we like people <laughs> <laughs> in my that would be the fantasy um but I, but I but I do wonder a little bit just about you know, similar to the conversation we were having a moment ago about the athletic, the difference between an actual constituency of people who crave this information and a real business impetus to flood the zone. What you see right now, when you watch television sports, you see an enormous amount of fighting over territory among the sports books, and especially where people are, you know, now legally gambling. And, you know, I don't know, like you watch this and you say like, geez, everybody in America, like, you know, betting $500 on this game? Or are these a bunch of companies with enormous amounts of capital who are pumping it in, in a do or die effort to kill each other? And that's what's driving this business. And it's going to sort of settle at a certain point. I will add that, I mean, Bill, I don't know what you want to say, but you know, you probably have some feel for what audiences crave and what is the line in terms of how to talk about betting in a context of a general sports audience. I don't know what it is.
0: I'm a bad person to ask. I've been here the whole time. (laughs) I'm just glad everyone swung around to me. I've been here since the 1990s, (laughs) waiting waiting for this world to exist. And I'm so happy we're here. I do think it's weird when we get people who literally don't understand even basics of gambling that are on TV or in a podcast pretending that they do. I think, I'm sure that will shake out over the course of the next couple of years. But for the most part, like, Look, it makes it more fun. I think it's certainly driven interest. Football is the most popular it's probably ever been in my lifetime. Honestly, I, I feel like football is is an absolute comet right now. And I think that gambling's a part of it. I think gambling and fantasy, it's just everyone is so locked in week after week and it doesn't end. And you think like the fantasy playoffs were this week on top of all the bets that whoever had and uh, especially as it gets legal in more and more states, so. Um, yeah, all right, that was uh, that was the last topic. I'm, I guess we'll save the Wilshification of NBA media for next time. Sorry, sorry to Wilshification and his family. Uh, Jason has a parting shot for us.
1: Oh, yeah, it wouldn't be a Sports for Potters without a proper parting shot. So, uh, let's go from here. All right, um, gentlemen, a shocking, disturbing event happened in sports the other day, and I need to call public attention to it it's more shocking and disturbing than pigs flying it's more shocking and disturbing than bill simmons doing an entire podcast devoted to nhl hockey rumors what is this shocking disturbing event (laughs) well bill belichick apologized to the media it's true It actually happened. Monday morning, New England's forever taciturn Hoodie Kenobi apologized to the press for being short with them following the Patriots' (laughs) loss to Indianapolis on Saturday. I never thought I'd live to see the day. And as much as I appreciate any polite, humane gesture in these acrimonious times, I have to admit something, gentlemen. It has me worried. (laughs) I'm worried. Does a Belichick apology portend the end of days Are we inches from the apocalypse? What Dr. Peter Venkman once described to an ambivalent New York City mayor as human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Nobody could say for sure. But I do know this. Life has changed a lot these past couple of years. We wear masks to the supermarket. We conduct basic interaction via technology. We live in an increasingly contactless world, deprived of warmth and basic human enjoyment. I'm getting used to it, but I'm not quite ready for a world in which Bill Belichick tells the fourth estate. I'm sorry.
0: Well said. That was a good one. I'm with you. I was shocked by that. Brian, does anybody
2: anybody imitate anything as, as well as Jason imitates the tone of the sports reporter circa 1988? I really just for
0: the people listening, <laughs> just go on YouTube and watch the sports reporters from the late eighties, early nineties. We weren't chuckling because I didn't want to, I didn't want to interrupt your zoom video because you're on zoom and, but yeah, is it, that was, that's what they were like. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's unbelievable. I just,
1: this is audience of one for Jeremy Schaff You know, if Jeremy <laughs> Schaff approves, I, I, I'd be, I'd be honored.
0: <laughs> um, All right, you can read Jason Gay in the Wall Street Journal. You can read Brian Curtis on The Ringer and you can listen to his podcast, The Press Box. Um, That's it for 2021. I think we hit just about everything. Good to see you guys. Thanks for uh, coming on as always. Thanks, Bill. All right, that's it for the podcast. It was produced by Kyle Creighton back on Thursday on this feed. And then new rewatch was coming Wednesday night, Father of the Bride. See you here on Thursday.